You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode number 181 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. With the last episode, we talked a bit more about the Second Battle of Manassas and what happened after the fighting was over, including Abraham Lincoln's controversial decision to give George McClellan command of the combined Union armies in Northern Virginia as the federal soldiers fell back into the fortifications around Washington. Yep, uh, John Pope was out. His Army of Virginia was folded into the Army of the Potomac, and Little Mac was back on top. Even as McClellan got to work sorting out the mess after the federal disaster at 2nd Manassas, Robert E. Lee had some decisions to make after the Confederate victory. Put very simply, Lee had to decide what to do next. In just a few short months, Lee's victories in the Seven Days and at 2nd Manassas had changed the momentum of the war in Virginia and shifted the scene of the fighting from the outskirts of Richmond, about a 100 miles north, to the outskirts of Washington. But despite his amazing victories, Robert E. Lee knew he couldn't simply rest on his laurels. In trying to decide what to do next, however, Lee now found himself faced with a difficult dilemma because he didn't have many viable options. Despite fears in Washington, Lee never seriously entertained thoughts of following up the retreating federal columns and attacking the capital. The fortifications were simply too strong, and the enemy forces regrouping there outnumbered his Army of Northern Virginia by more than two to one. Lee briefly considered two other courses of action. One was to withdraw south to a more defensible position behind the Rappahannock River. There he could rest and resupply his exhausted army. The other possibility, to remain in northern Virginia, seemed out of the question from a logistical standpoint, since the area had already been made desolate by war, with thousands of foraging troops from both sides having stripped the countryside of food and fodder. Aside from any other considerations, both of those options would effectively give the Federals time to regroup from their defeats and would surrender the initiative to them, and that was something Robert E. Lee simply would not willingly do. And so there was really only one choice that made sense, a strike north across the Potomac. On Wednesday, September 3rd, 1862, just four days after his army's victory at 2nd Manassas, Lee dispatched a long letter to Confederate President Jefferson Davis. The key sentence in that letter was the first one. Lee told Davis, quote, The present seems to be the most propitious time since the commencement of the war 
for the Confederate Army to enter Maryland. End quote. And with those words, Robert E. Lee announced his intention to carry the war north into the border state of Maryland, launching a campaign that would culminate in the bloodiest single day of combat in American military history and would exert a profound influence on the course of the war. Robert E. Lee knew that a strike north had much to offer. It was nearly harvest time, which meant Lee's army would be able to gain some much-needed provisions from Maryland's bountiful countryside. Taking the war across the Potomac would also give the people of war-torn Virginia a reprieve, a well-earned break during the fall harvest from the constant fighting and campaigning that had taken place across the length and breadth of the state. There was even the possibility, however remote, that a sweep into Maryland would encourage the people of this slave-owning border state, which had pockets of strong southern leanings, to rise up and cast its lot with the Confederacy. These factors alone were a strong incentive to Lee, but he realized there was much more to be gained by a drive north, much more than just gathering food and fodder, and the possibility of adding another star to the Confederacy's banner. By striking north, Lee, being Lee, was hoping, above all else, to pull off another battlefield victory, this one on northern soil. In a post-war interview, Lee admitted that this was his chief motivation for launching the strike north. He said, quote, I went into Maryland to give battle, end quote. You see, with the Federals' seemingly endless supply of manpower and their vastly superior industrial and manufacturing capabilities, Lee understood that the longer the war continued, the less chance at victory the Confederacy would have. Lee thought that to prevail in this conflict, the Confederacy would have to wear down the Union's willingness to fight, and the only way to do this was to defeat its armies on the battlefield, to convince the North that the cost of subduing the South wasn't worth paying. Such a mindset helps explain Lee's willingness throughout the war to assume many bold risks, and this is what motivated him in early September 1862 to lead his men across the Potomac River into western Maryland. The best chance for Confederate victory was to strike again while the Yankees were, quote, much weakened and demoralized, end quote, as Lee wrote to Jefferson Davis on September 3rd. Therefore, the South should try for a knockout punch while its armies had the power to deliver it. Just as the Western rebel armies under Braxton Bragg and Kirby Smith were on the march out in Kentucky, Lee would invade Maryland. If all went well, the Army of Northern Virginia might even sweep north into the rich, unspoiled countryside of Pennsylvania. The timing of the campaign was also important to Lee, in the sense that he was well aware that the 1862 midterm elections across the North were less than two months away. In a September 8th letter to Jefferson Davis, Lee said that another Confederate victory, quote, would enable the people of the United States to determine at their coming elections whether they will support those who favor a continuation of the war or those who wish to bring it to a termination, end quote. 
Lee's reference to, quote, their coming elections revealed one of the purposes of his invasion, that is, to encourage the election of peace Democrats to the U.S. Congress. You see, the onset of hostilities had placed Northern Democrats in a difficult position, since their pre-war political power had depended on an alliance with Southern Democrats. Because of this, they had traditionally sided with the South on slavery and other issues of concern to the South. But in 1861 and early 1862, nearly all Northern Democrats denounced secession and professed support for the restoration of the Union. The party, however, soon divided into War Democrats and Peace Democrats. War Democrats agreed with the Republicans that the Southern Rebellion must be suppressed by military means. But they disagreed with the hard war measures that were becoming Republican policy in 1862. They voted against confiscation and emancipation bills in Congress. They opposed Lincoln's suspension of habeas corpus and the military arrest of alleged Confederate sympathizers. They passed angry resolutions against such measures in their state and county conventions during 1862. Peace Democrats opposed those measures and policies even more loudly and forcefully, and by 1862 they also began speaking out against the war itself as a means of restoring the Union, especially the kind of war it was turning into, a war to destroy the Old South and slavery, instead of a war to simply restore the Union as it was. The phrase, the Union as it was, became their slogan, and armistice and peace negotiations became their goal. Such convictions among peace Democrats became stronger when the war seemed to be going badly for the North, as it, was in, as it was in the late summer of 1862. That was why Robert E. Lee, who was a keen reader of captured Northern newspapers, thought that another Confederate battlefield victory could help make the upcoming 1862 midterm elections into a referendum between those who favored a continuation of the war that is, Republicans, and those who wished to seek a negotiated peace with the Confederacy, that is, peace Democrats. And Lee knew that an armistice and peace settlement with Southern armies in Maryland and Kentucky would certainly mean Confederate independence. And so the New York Times hit close to the mark when it declared that the election of a Democratic majority in the midterm elections, quote, would be regarded by the South as a symptom of division in the northern states, as an indication that public sentiment had turned against the war. End quote. The result of the North's 1862 midterm elections was not only of interest to Southern leaders, but would be watched closely in Europe as well. French officials, in particular, expected the Democrats to win control of the House of Representatives. The French ambassador in Washington believed that this outcome would make the Lincoln administration agreeable to mediation. In fact, he proposed to his superiors in Paris that when the result of the elections became known, the British and French should issue a joint statement calling for mediation. The course of the war in the summer of 1862 revived Confederate hopes for European diplomatic recognition. Lee's victories convinced British and French leaders 
that northern armies could never conquer the South and restore the Union. London and Paris contemplated an offer of mediation, which would have constituted de facto recognition of the Confederacy. Like the French ambassador in Washington, the British Foreign Secretary, Lord Russell, also anticipated that Abraham Lincoln would cave in if Democrats won control of the House of Representatives in the upcoming election, and Russell added, quote, I wish them success. The news of Second Manassas and of Lee's invasion of Maryland accelerated the pace of intervention discussions in London and Paris. The secretary of the American Embassy in London, a fellow named Benjamin Moran, reported that, quote, The rebels here are elated beyond measure, end quote, by the news of Lee's victory at Manassas. Moran was disgusted by the, quote, exultation of the British press. I confess to losing my temper when I see my bleeding country wantonly insulted in her hour of disaster. At the additional news that Lee had invaded Maryland, Moran admitted to, quote, a sense of mortification. The effect of this news here is to make those who were our friends ashamed to own the fact. The Union is regarded as hopelessly gone. The French foreign secretary told the American ambassador in Paris that the Confederate victory at Second Manassas and Lee's invasion of Maryland proved, quote, the undertaking of conquering the South is impossible, end quote. The British Chancellor of the Exchequer, William Gladstone, said that it was, quote, certain in the opinion of the whole world, except one of the parties, that the South cannot be conquered. It is our absolute duty to recognize that Southern independence is established. Gladstone wasn't a new convert to that position. The real danger to the Union cause came from the potential conversion of the British Prime Minister, Viscount Palmerston, who just two months earlier had blocked a parliamentary resolution favoring mediation. But after Second Manassas, Palmerston appeared ready to change his mind. Palmerston wrote to Russell, who was traveling abroad with Queen Victoria, that the Federals, quote, got a very complete smashing, and it seems not altogether unlikely that still greater disasters await them, and that even Washington and Baltimore might fall into the hands of the Confederates. Palmerston went on, saying that if something like that happened, quote, would it not be time for us to consider whether England and France might not address the contending parties and recommend an arrangement on the basis of separation? Russell needed little persuasion to agree to the Prime Minister's suggestion. In fact, he added that if the Lincoln administration refused to accept mediation, then, quote, we ought ourselves to recognize the southern states as an independent state. On September 14th, before news of Antietam arrived in England, Palmerston informed Gladstone of the plan to hold a cabinet meeting on the subject when Russell returned to London in October. The offer of mediation would be made to both sides, to Washington and to Richmond, to be followed by diplomatic recognition of the Confederacy. But Palmerston and Russell agreed to take no action, quote, till we see a little more into the results of the Southern invasion. If the Federals sustain a great defeat, their cause will be manifestly hopeless and the iron should be struck while it is hot. If, on the other hand, they should have the best of it, we may have to wait and see what may follow. End quote. 
Hey there, I'm Dylan Lewis, one of the hosts of Motley Fool Money. Each weekday on Motley Fool Money, we talk through the business news you need to know and the stories moving stocks on Wall Street. On weekends, we dive into the industries shaping tomorrow and host the experts, authors, and executives that understand them. Tune in for insights, a long-term perspective on investing, and of course, stock ideas, plenty of them. To quote a listener, it pays to listen. Check us out and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Great events, therefore, awaited the outcome of Robert E. Lee's decision to cross the Potomac River and strike north. Hanging in the balance was victory or defeat, foreign intervention, the northern midterm elections, the very willingness of the northern people to keep fighting for the Union. But even beyond those considerations, there was one more issue awaiting the outcome of Lee's invasion, and that was Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Back on July 8th, the president had read George McClellan's Harrison's Landing Letter without comment, but the president's thoughts can be guessed. Several months earlier, Lincoln might have agreed with much of what McClellan wrote, as Little Mac strenuously objected to the ongoing transition to hard war. After all, in his annual message to Congress the previous December, Lincoln had expressed a hope that the war would not, quote, degenerate into a violent and remorseless revolutionary struggle, end quote. By that, he meant that he hoped at that time to continue with a conciliatory approach to restoring the rebellious states to the Union, rather than have the war turn into a vicious contest in which the Old South's way of life was destroyed in the social and economic upheaval that would necessarily accompany the destruction of slavery. But since then, the war had become remorseless, and Lincoln was about to embrace the revolution. And because Abraham Lincoln had the courage to do so, emancipation would be, arguably, the Civil War's most profound outcome. Slavery was the war's cause, but through the war, through the violent and remorseless revolutionary struggle which the war became, the nation would experience a new birth of freedom. That was still in the future, of course. In the summer of 1862, after the recent military setbacks, the president now was frustrated and irritated with Democrats and border state unionists who complained about this turn toward what the New York Times was calling, quote, an active and vigorous war policy, end quote. An exasperated Lincoln said sarcastically that the war could no longer be fought with squirt guns. Well, actually, he said it couldn't be fought any longer, quote, 
with elder stock squirts charged with rose water, end quote. Well, anyway, with regard to the conciliatory approach that back at the beginning of the war had seemed the best way to entice rebellious Southerners back into the Union, Lincoln now pointed out that after more than a year of brutal struggle, quote, this government cannot much longer play a game in which it stakes all and its enemies stake nothing. Those enemies must understand that they cannot experiment for ten years trying to destroy the government, and if they fail, still come back into the Union unhurt. We'll go into much more detail later on in the podcast when we talk about the Emancipation Proclamation and when we look at the progression of events that led to Lincoln's crafting of the proclamation. But for now, we'll point out that it was on July 12th, in the wake of Lee's victory during the Seven Days Battles, that Lincoln called Border State congressmen to the White House to give them one last chance to accept his offer of compensated emancipation. And as Tracy said, we'll look at this in more detail later on, but this program of gradual compensated emancipation with regard to the slave-owning border states that had remained loyal to the Union, well, it was an important part of Abraham Lincoln's plan to publicly make the end of slavery a national goal. But at that July 12th meeting at the White House, the border state men turned Lincoln down. Intensely disappointed and frustrated by their response, the president evidently made up his mind that very evening to go ahead with a proclamation of emancipation that would be grounded in his war powers as commander-in-chief to seize enemy property, in this case slaves, being used to wage war against the United States. The next day, Lincoln shared a carriage with Secretary of State William Seward and Secretary of the Navy Gideon Wells on their way to the funeral for a child of Secretary of War Edwin Stanton. During the ride, the President informed Seward and Wells of his intention to issue an Emancipation Proclamation. As Wells later remembered the conversation, Lincoln said that this matter had, for several weeks, quote, occupied his mind and thoughts by day and night. According to Wells, Lincoln said that he had concluded that emancipation was, quote, a military necessity, absolutely essential to the preservation of the Union. The slaves are undeniably an element of strength to those who have their service, and we must decide whether that element should be for us or against us, end quote. Nine days later, Lincoln called the whole cabinet together to announce his decision. They expressed varying degrees of support, and only Postmaster General Montgomery Blair voiced opposition to the President's decision. Blair was a former Democrat from Maryland who had turned Republican, and he protested that the Democrats would seize on the unpopularity of such a measure and would make substantial gains in the fall elections. Seward said that he approved of the proclamation, kind of. You see, he didn't exactly think it was necessary since it was Seward's belief that the war itself meant the destruction of slavery was inevitable. But if Lincoln wanted to issue an Emancipation Proclamation, that was fine with Seward. But he didn't agree with the timing of issuing it immediately during these dark and dismal days in the North. Seward pointed out that if it was issued now, many, including the unfriendly European newspapers, 
would view the proclamation as the desperate act of a Lincoln administration that was on the ropes after recent Confederate victories. And so Seward advised Lincoln to postpone issuing the proclamation, quote, until you can give it to the country supported by military success, end quote. Otherwise, the Secretary of State said the world might view it, quote, as the last measure of an exhausted government, a cry for help, our last shriek on the retreat, end quote. The president later said that the wisdom of Seward's suggestion, quote, struck me with very great force, end quote. And so in July, after that cabinet meeting, Abraham Lincoln put the Emancipation Proclamation away to wait for a Union military victory. Imagine a river, as I remember it, about 500 yards wide, from two to three feet deep, the water very swift. Now it is just as full of men as can be for 600 or 700 yards, up and down, yelling and singing all sorts of war and jolly songs. In this connection, you must find room for eight or twelve regimental bands, the drums beating, the horns a-tootin', and the fifes a-screaming, possibly every one of them on a different air. Some Dixie, some Maryland, my Maryland, some the girl I left behind me, some Yankee Doodle. All the men are apparently jolly. I, at least, did not feel very jolly. While I was deeply interested in the movement and believe it would result in a great advantage to our cause, yet I could not for the life of me suppress a feeling of sadness as I watched this vast concourse of humanity wading the river, so full of music and apparently never once thinking that their feet, many of them, would never press the soil on the south side of the Potomac again. About noon, as I now remember the hour, it came the turn of the Texas Brigade to cross over. In we bulged, our bands playing and the boys yelling, as jolly as any who had gone before or any who came after us. Private John W. Stevens, 5th Texas Infantry, Walfurt's Brigade. Almost certainly, Robert E. Lee's victorious but worn-out army should have gone into camp for rest and refitting after Second Manassas. Most of them had been fighting or marching with little pause for ten weeks. Thousands were shoeless, their uniforms were in rags, and all were hungry. And although beaten, the Union Army still had superior numbers and was safe in its formidable Washington defenses. But Robert E. Lee had the initiative and he was disinclined to give it up, so he would strike north. Over the past 150 years, historians have compiled a list of reasons to explain why Lee decided to move north into Maryland, and just as important, why Jefferson Davis approved it. Some accounts of the Antietam campaign make much of the fact that although Lee wrote to Jefferson Davis on September 3rd and informed Davis of his intention to march north into Maryland, Lee didn't wait for the Confederate president's reply or approval before he started crossing the Potomac. But the truth is, Lee started moving when he did because he was confident of Davis's approval and support. Yeah, some historians have seen Lee as having presented Jefferson Davis with a crossing of the Potomac as an accomplished fact in order to preempt any anticipated presidential objections. 
And although Robert E. Lee undoubtedly wanted the freedom to determine the pace and course of military operations without presidential interference, the truth is there's nothing to suggest Jefferson Davis was ever reluctant to give Lee that freedom once he placed Lee in command of the army. And so it makes more sense to see Lee's crossing of the Potomac before he received Davis's approval as a sign of the mutual trust that existed between the general and the president, which had started back in Richmond when Lee was Davis's chief military advisor. So all of that's to say that as far as the timing of his letter to Davis and the army starting to cross the Potomac, we don't think Robert E. Lee was trying to pull one over on the Confederate president. But rather, Lee knew, because of their long and close association, that Davis would approve of his decision and support him in its implementation. Exactly. At any rate, we've already looked at what led Lee to make his decision to invade Maryland. There were logistical and political and diplomatic factors, but it's important to never lose sight of the bottom line the fact that Lee would be seeking to engage the Yankees in another major battle, one that would hopefully be decisive. In a few weeks, however, the Union armies would have recovered their morale, repaired their organization, and replenished their ranks, and would be ready to begin another offensive against the Confederates with superiority in men, guns, and resources. To prevent such an offensive, Lee had to maintain the initiative by offensive operations of his own. And Lee was confident that once the Federals left their Washington fortifications and the war became one of maneuver once again, he would hold the upper hand. But against all the potential benefits of immediately launching into another campaign, Lee had to weigh one great drawback, and that was the condition of his army. In his letter to Jefferson Davis, Lee admitted that, quote, the army is not properly equipped for an invasion of an enemy's territory. It lacks much of the material of war, is feeble in transportation, the animals being much reduced, and the men are poorly provided with clothes, and in thousands of instances are destitute of shoes. End quote. Still, Lee scarcely hesitated. He held the initiative and had few viable options for exploiting it. Therefore, if he was going to launch a strike north, it had to be done immediately. Nevertheless, there was no getting around the fact that it was a ragtag Confederate army that set out for Maryland. The men were gaunt and unshaved, with shaggy hair poking through holes in their shapeless hats. The uniforms of many hung in tatters, and bodies and clothes were filthy and infested with lice. Only their rifles and bayonets were clean. Thousands of men trudged along with no shoes, a fact which caused Robert E. Lee never-ending grief. By one estimate, fully one-fourth of Lee's army trod the roads to Sharpsburg barefoot. Worse than the pain of cut and bruised feet, though, was the gnawing hunger. A private in the 17th Virginia wrote that, quote, For six days not a morsel of bread or meat had gone in our stomachs. Our menu consists of apples and corn. We toasted, we burned, we stewed, we boiled, we roasted these two together and singly, until there was not a man whose form had not caved in and who had not a bad attack of diarrhea. End quote. Thousands of stragglers, ill and exhausted, fell too far behind to catch up as the army invaded Maryland. Others, interestingly, dropped out of the march 
for reasons of conscience. These men, many from the westernmost counties of North and South Carolina, insisted that they had enlisted to defend home and hearth, not to invade the North. Still others, natives of Northern Virginia, simply got tired of the constant marching and fighting and returned to their nearby homes without benefit of leave, there to sit out the coming campaign before rejoining their units afterward. For example, the 8th Virginia, a regiment raised in the region around Leesburg, near where the army crossed the Potomac, lost two-thirds of its members on the march to the river. Later on, we'll talk more about the extreme straggling that plagued the Confederate Army during the Antietam Campaign, but for now we'll note that, by all indications, the men who remained in the ranks and crossed the Potomac were supremely confident in their ability to whip the Yankees again. Account after account of the campaign mentions the high morale of the troops who crossed the Potomac into Maryland. The army had confidence, confidence in the cause it was fighting for, confidence in themselves, and confidence in Robert E. Lee. On September 3rd, the day he wrote Jefferson Davis about his decision to cross into Maryland, Lee began shifting his army north and west from Chantilly toward Leesburg near the shallow fords of the Upper Potomac. The next day, on Thursday, September 4th, the first units of the Army of Northern Virginia crossed the Potomac into Maryland, and the crossing of the army continued through the weekend. There was a universal sense that this was a historic moment. As the quote that Tracy read indicated, men long remembered the scene when their unit made the crossing. A Prussian-born officer on Jeb Stuart's staff, Major Eros von Borka, left perhaps the most vivid portrait of Lee's veterans splashing through the water. He said, Quote, it was indeed a magnificent sight as the long column of many thousand horsemen stretched across this beautiful Potomac. The evening sun slanted upon its clear, placid waters and burnished them with gold, while the arms of the soldiers glittered and blazed in its radiance. There were few moments, perhaps, from the beginning to the close of the war, of excitement more intense, of exhilaration more delightful, than when we ascended the opposite bank to the familiar but now strangely thrilling music of Maryland, my Maryland. Von Borka was a cavalryman, and they often saw the world in a different light than did the long-suffering infantry, but even the Confederate foot soldiers thought the scene grand and magnificent. The only thing a lieutenant in the Second South Carolina found to complain about with the crossing was that it was too brief. He wrote that, quote, we needed a good washing of our bodies, but waiting in the water did us no good in that direction. Caught up in the spirit of the moment, even Stonewall Jackson unbent a bit. When a jumble of wagons became snarled midstream due to bulky army mules who, like the dirty men, wanted to spend more time in the refreshing water, an irritated Jackson ordered his chief quartermaster, Major John A. Harmon, to clear the traffic jam. Harmon was an extremely competent quartermaster. He was also a famously profane man with considerable experience at handling mules. According to one account, Harmon dashed in among the wagoners and in a voice like a trumpet poured out a volume of oaths that would excite the admiration of the most scientific mule driver. The effect was electrical. The drivers were frightened and swore as best they could but far below the major's standards. 
The mules caught the inspiration from a chorus of familiar words, and all at once made a break for the Maryland shore, and in five minutes the ford was cleared. Jackson witnessed and heard it all. Harmon rode back to join him, expecting a lecture, and touching his hat, said, The ford is clear, General. There's only one language that will make mules understand on a hot day that they must get out of the water. Stonewall smiled and replied, Thank you, Major, and dashed into the water at the head of his staff and rode across. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Confederate Tide Rising, Robert E. Lee and the Making of Southern Strategy, 1861-1862 to by Joseph L. Harsh. Harsh says he didn't set out to write this book, but that it wrote itself, which is a neat trick. Um, well, okay, what he says is that it wrote itself as he tried to understand why Robert E. Lee crossed the Potomac River into Maryland in early September 1862. That curiosity on Harsh's part led him to a complete re-examination of the factors that shaped Confederate strategy during the first year and a half of the Civil War. And you may not always agree with his conclusions, but he'll make you think about what he's writing about. Anyway, we thought this was a good time in the podcast to recommend this book. So that's Confederate Tide Rising, Robert E. Lee and the Making of Southern Strategy, 1861 to 1862 by Joseph L. Harsh. You can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. And it's been a while since we made this particular request, but if you listen to the podcast through iTunes, please consider leaving the the show a five-star rating or even taking a minute to write a quick review. Many, many of you have already done that, and we thank you for that, but... But if everyone does it, then that will just help even more people discover the podcast and listen to it. Exactly. So thanks in advance for doing that. And a quick thanks also to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Ian and Greg, who joined this past week. And then a special thank you to Patricia for her wonderful gift and for thinking of us while she was in New York. Yep, thanks, Patricia. Uh, That was extremely nice of you. Okay, then thanks to all of you guys for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope you'll join us next time as we get Lee's army across the Potomac River and then look at the curious case of the Lost Order. So that'll be next time, but until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.